Oh, thanks for coming on, Neil. Um, Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much, Neil. An undercover police officer. You spent a lot of your life uh, doing that. And uh, to be honest with you, mate, I'm not just saying this. It's only in the last sort of six months, and I'm I'm a bit ashamed of this, to be honest, where I've actually, like, realised, bloody hell, like, uh, we really depend on the services. Like, we... like. as a normal person, I suppose you say the when you say the odd robbery or the odd fire or, or the odd strain on the nurses, doctors, and all these people, you don't realise sort of just how much we depend on them. But when you see really big events happen, like we have one after the other after the other lately, you think fucking hell. Without these people, we'd be really up shit creek. So um, you know, actually, sort of a newfound appreciation for them. I don't know about you, mate. I think I've always had an appreciation for them. No, I didn't. Um, I, I appreciated them, but what I mean is I didn't realise the actual, the seriousness of how badly we need these people. I think maybe also, uh, and maybe you can say the same to this, is what you realise um, a good, or at least things are going well when you don't realise that's what you have. Exactly. Uh, so maybe things aren't going so well now that we know that we have the police mm. and the NHS and those sort of things. It's, is that sort of, I don't know, maybe it's a silly question, but... I'm thinking, is it sort of a good thing for you when people sort of aren't really aware that the police are around sort of thing, but when you're, because we're more aware of it now, do you think that that's a sign of the times? Well, I mean, it's a sign of events, definitely, mm. and it's interesting you say that uh, you become more aware of, of, of actually relying on services mm-hmm. and police in particular, but that's because of the nature of those events though, isn't it? Mm. And the, the kind of stuff that I did was a little bit sneakier than that, really, and um, whereas you know, events, as you, as you mentioned in London, have been about um, things that need to be done, things that police should be doing. Mm. You know, police should be protecting communities and reacting and, and, and investigating crimes. The kind of stuff um, that I did, it, it's more debatable whether it's required. I mean, I have quite some stri- strong views on, on that now. Um, but, you know, there's, police do different things, mm. is what I'm trying to say. And well, Your book is called... Good, uh, good cop, bad war, and you were mainly involved in the war on drugs. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I, uh, I over the space of fourteen years, I worked undercover. Mm-hmm. So I, my brief was to go into an inner city and basically cut, try and catch gangsters, mm-hmm. and based work from the bottom up generally. Um, so, so that was that was my brief. So, so what? Uh but how do you start and how do you get into that? Because that's not... Um, well, I, I guess maybe it is something in school you do think that would actually be quite a cool job. Um, oh, it's, it is quite glamorous to the mind of a, of a young man. Yeah, because you're putting on a moustache and, you know, but, you've got a wig and, you know, you're getting to dress up as whatever in, in your most, mind. I think most of the time in life you'll find whatever you think a job is is like, and, and I'm talking for all jobs, it, it's never what it's cracked up to be. And... and, and <laughs> So I know a couple of lads who are policemen who've actually told me, like, they kind of regret getting into it now. Like, the the urge to help people and do good is still there, Um, but the shit you have to go through in dealing with the backstabbing and things that goes on in in places like the police force sometimes, it's more hassle than it's worth, some people say. Um, What what, what was your experience in that? How did you feel when you first walked in as a police officer and like your first early days? Oh God, I, I mean I was 19 mm-hmm. I dropped out of university and I thought well, what am I going to do? What were you studying at uni? Uh, business studies. Okay. 
So really you weren't always stupid idea because I, I got them fine. I had absolutely no interest in business whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So I quickly dropped out, and I think that, that what was going on in Manchester at the time was quite an influence as well because it was just one big party. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was the birth of Acid House, and it was fabulous. <laughs> so ironic that obviously you got uh, recommended to us by Sean Atwood, who was really. Big into that the Godfather scene. of Acid House in Manchester. <laughs> well, nobody, that, you, that was the first name that came to my head when you mentioned that era. Yeah, I mean, Manchester then was incredible. Mm. It really was. But I, I, mean, I you didn't last for it. Like, you, did Not you ever really. go to any raves or anything? I, well, yeah, I went to loads of the Acid House parties. Yeah. But, it was, but as a normal I, person, I, as a policeman? No, no, as a student. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I stood on a, on a wooden box in many a warehouse, waving my arms around <laughs> to, <laughs> to, 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 to 303s and, and, and squelchy. So you weren't a uh, 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 do-gooder, like as in uh, some people make out like, uh, the, I guess there's a bit of a stereotype about policemen that they were all bullied at school and they're all like basically straight, like as the, as it gets. No, I mean, I, I, no, I was um, a basic sort of up, upbringing, fairly middle class town, but not, not particularly well off. I grew up in Buxton and I went to um College in Manchester, but I mean, I didn't last long because I dropped out. It was boring as hell, mm-hmm. and I realised I wanted to do something that was, you know, different every day. So I had planned to go backpacking around Europe because at the time that's what adventurous nineteen-year-olds did. Is that mm-hmm. interrail or was that sort? Yeah, of Yeah, yeah, interrailing, and then maybe fruit picking that kind of thing. This is this is the idea I had. We've, but, all, we've all had that dream. We've all Everyone's had that. Had that. Was, that was there. Not me. No. <laughs> I was I was there and ready to go, and then I saw an advert for the police in my local newspaper. So I thought, oh, that'll be different every day. That'll yeah. be a bit different, you know. Learn a few few things. Fruit picking in the. It, it feels to me though, people, and this isn't. I kind of wished I'd done it in a way because they people seem to really get a lot out of those experiences when they go backpacking. Mm. But there's some people I do know who've gone and then gone too long and it's almost like now they're just avoiding getting on with life and they just want to put oh, it yeah. on hold. Yeah, but and you're saying that as a YouTuber. But they don't, yeah, but I mean, yeah. I've been a lucky bastard because when I avoided life, it just somehow landed on my feet. Yeah, yeah. But you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think you, you, you pick the sensible option. Well, quite possibly. Uh, but I flipped a coin anyway because mm-hmm. I couldn't decide. Did you really? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I flipped a coin. Heads was... Heads was the police. Ironically, like one of the very known famous criminal used to. Uh, yeah. Two Fists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a real criminal. A fictional there. criminal, yeah. oh, okay. I must say. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, 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 was, I was living that DC world, yeah, yeah. definitely. So, <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, I went into the police and I got in, but I was an incredibly naive. Well, I didn't realise at the time I was naive until I got into the police. And I was crap at it. I, were really, I was genuinely rubbish. I didn't deal with the confrontation very well. Uh, I didn't, didn't get on with my colleagues very well. I was more of a sort of nerd. You know, I used to play Dungeons and Dragons and I was listening to, listen to Acid House or, or Progressive Rock and they all just want to talk about football. So there was a real culture clash. And, and, so I, did, and I did struggle. Were they more like jocks, would you, like that sort of type? Straight jocks. I mean, there's there's a lot. There's a big mixture of people in the police, but there's still a huge percentage who I suppose you could describe as jocks. Mm-hmm. They want to talk about football. In fact, one person said to me, "You don't talk about football. What do you talk about?" <laughs> and it was an honest. It was an honest question. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so it was. It was. Um, it was a real, real weird culture shock. That's trying to break up a fight outside a pub, and I, it was just. You know, I'm just holding onto someone's arm and being swung about. You know, I just. I was absolutely terrible at it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I just about survived my probation. I was I was on reports for a bit, and then I moved up to uh, the north of the county again, up to Glossop, and I did better. But then I was fortunate to get a month's attachment to the drug squad, 
Now, the drug squad at the time was where all, all the all the money was. They were the all the detectives wanted to get into the drug squad. They had the biggest cars, they had the biggest overtime. They were they were flash. And why, so, why did you get into that then? If you were if you were considered not to be very good at policing, well, I'd, by that stage I'd improved <coughs> and, and I'd started to started to become good to start to arrest people and start to catch in, criminals. In what way would you say you'd improved? Do you feel like the con- you sort of gradually learned how to be a bit more confrontational and? Oh, it's not being confrontational; it's dealing with confrontation. Dealing with it rather, yeah, sorry. Sort, sort of re- reducing it, and mm-hmm. and I was just I was fairly good at investigating crime and. And catching people, you know. Do you think that that nerdiness that you said did, yeah, did that ner- sort of pay into you? That yeah, helped ner- you. Nerdiness definitely helped. Mm-hmm. Atten- attention to detail, and I had my eye on CID. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that was the kind of thing that suited my personality more. And I was just fortunate, I think, to have got to the, got the drug squad attachment. Was but, it a bit of a cliche, really? Did you, were you? Was it sort of you and your partner who was a kind of you know? Hard-nosed jock. You, you you're picturing of... me and you being detectives, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> so it was a bit more... You were sort of the one who was like a bit more considered and he was a bit more like, let's get out of here. And you were like, no, there's something around on the, you know, on the scene that we can find here. And then you find like a hair or something. You know, was it a bit more like that? Uh, a little bit. If, 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 you, if you consider me me and the rest of them a general partner because mm-hmm. you, actually okay. as a police officer you, gen- you tend to work on your own as a constable really okay. yeah mo- most of the time because everyone's it, I, I, whenever I think of a policeman I never think of a lone policeman do you know what I mean oh well in there the, quite a lonely in time. Derbyshire you know you've there's not so many numbers that you can go around in pairs most of the time. Okay. So yeah, you know, well, I was on my own most of the time. Okay. And just and when you say catching criminals, you don't mean sort of hopping fences and stuff. You mean more sort of well, hunting yeah, the, people down or there, yeah, there was there was a fair bit of that. I mean, uh, I, I remember um, that just stood outside the local nightclub in Glossop, and a guy came out had been chucked out, and he chucked chucked this rock through the through the window. And bearing in mind, I'm quite some distance away from it at this yeah. point. I started moving towards him, and I actually said. Stop, police. Brilliant. And of course, they don't, do they? And I thought, I said it, I can't believe I just said that. Yeah. I could have snuck up behind him, you know? It's like classic cliche. Anyway, a bit of a running after him. and a You bit of a miss down the street and he's like, oh wait, that's not a gun, is it? And you're like, no, it isn't, but you stop. <laughs> anyway, I ran, ran after him and uh, I ended up scrapping with him for a good mm. five minutes and brought him in. And, and the fact that I was quite scrawny and I managed to hold on to this guy, I suppose those were the kind of things that, Created a reputation, which managed to manage to sneak a attachment to the drug squad for a month. For a month, yeah, okay. which is not a long time. And no. the drug squad hated it. They hated having rookies. Um, <laughs> Again, it is another cliche, though. Isn't I know, it? So I like, know, yeah. but they did. It's just yeah, totally cliche. But they hated it because we just got underfoot. We didn't know what we were doing. Mm-hmm. They hadn't chosen to have it. It was foisted upon them from management, uh, and they thought it was dreadful. But one of them said to me, who had a job down in Derby, one of them said. Uh, Fancy having to go up buying some crack? I thought, like, yeah. <laughs> right, okay. So, so, yeah, it's 20 quid. There's a door down there. Um, and there's, there's this gangster called Danny Anderson. Knock on the door, ask for Danny, and see if you can come away with a, with a crack cocaine. So in full uniform, you walked down no, no, the street. No, okay. No, no. No, by, by this day, I mean, but, had, with the drugstore, you, you had to be sneaking around. So yeah, was, I'm thinking to myself, build-wise... That's like um, scrawny sort of like fi- like physique that you've got. You're gonna be much much more believable oh, than some you. of those other guys. In, uh, uh, is that not well? That, even... m- that might have been the view that my colleague took. Yeah. But I mean, actually, that's stereotype because once you start moving amongst 
problematic drug users, you realise they come in all shapes and sizes. Yeah. So that's just part of the sort of right. stigma and stereotype, really. So you but it's probably, it's probably what thought he thought, hey, look at him, he's scrawny. He'll do. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> it, might, it might have been as simple as that, I don't know. So you're walking down the street. Yeah. And you just sort of going, yeah, all right, I'll give it a go. Yeah. Now, I am quite geeky. Okay. So I had picked up all of the right slang and I, and I knew the commodity to a degree. So I felt comfortable I could buy it, you know. When you say you knew the commodity, what you mean you just I, sort I of... I knew as much as I could about it okay. from, a, from an outsider's point of view. So you knew what to ask for, sort of how to ask for those sort of things. Yeah, yeah. Because so, it is a bit of a weird thing, you know, you don't really know. Well, One had, weed, um, please, you know. We had One a guy crack. called Paul Hannaford come down here and show us how um, he used to put the drugs in him. And that was an eye-opener, because like, if you've never been around heroin before, you you it, it, you're like, what the fucking hell is all this? Do you know what I mean? So you'd have had to done your research, obviously. Mm. Yeah. So because I mean, I was good. I was doing this attachment. So mm. I wanted to impress, and you know what I was talking about. Anyway, so I went and knocked on the door, and he interrogated me a bit. Where are you from? You know, how long have you been doing this? That kind of thing. And I asked him for a stone, and he gave me a little stone of crack wrapped in a uh, Rizzler, and I came away like, wow, I've got it. And you uh, get the stone, and you go. And he's going, who are you giving the thumbs up to? No one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that, that, that sort of defined the next 14 years of my life. Because the thing is, it, you, you probably see this on American TV, you hear about it, this kind of work having gone on in America for a long time. Yeah. At that point in 93, this was really new in the UK. I mean, there was undercover work, but that was more sort of high-end blokes wearing suits, that kind of thing. This low-level undercover work, it just hadn't, wasn't happening at all in the UK. And the reason it's, there was pressure to do it is because in the newspapers at the time, there was the major moral panic about crack and this, this evil drug that's coming from America. And I, I remember seeing Nancy Reagan on TV saying, one smoke of crack cocaine and you're addicted for life, which is bollocks, mm -hmm. but at the time I believed it. And she knew. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She knew. Yeah, it was a big. Yeah, it was a Ronald big... Reagan didn't know much either. That'd be fair. So yeah. what they were letting her talk for? Yeah, yeah. It's much more friendly face. <laughs> and and so, uh, what happened after you'd taken that crack rock? Did you you took it away? Did you then just go back to the house and arrest him, or what happened? No. Well, then it started a longer operation, and so the, the squad decided to try and sort of do a, a more intricate job and catch who, who his runners were, and mm -hmm. and. Did you I, prove yourself with that then? I, I did, yeah, because, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, one thing I found quite quickly is that I, I can stay calm in a pressure. So if I get an adrenaline situation, I, I feel like I've got all the time in the world to think about it, which is, which is as I understand, is a, is a reasonable advantage. It's probably why I took to it so quickly. Great quality to have, really. Why, so why you surprised you so yourself. Nervous, though? Yeah, why do you think you were so lack of nerves? Because, you know, people would think the opposite of a, like you say, a nerdy guy who goes into the police force. You sort of... Well, I mean, I, I, um, I just, you just have to approach it rationally um, and, and just, just try and slow your thinking down and think things through rationally. But it, it just so happens that my response to adrenaline, because don't, don't get me wrong, you know, I was in full fight or flight. Yeah. I knew I was at risk and, and the adrenaline was flowing, but that just make it just it just helps me relax. Well, mm -hmm. that's the way I, I sort of see it. Yeah. I've been in situations which some people would say are life or death before. And once you realise, if I attack this with a rational mindset, I've got 10 times better chance of getting out of the situation alive. Absolutely. Than if I panic, if you panic, you're much more likely to make an absolute tits of it. Um, and that... It's on that sort of decision in your head. Once you make that, 
you tend to approach things a lot more calmer than everyone else. I think that's the nail on the head, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly it. It's just approaching it with that rationale. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's it. And realising you'll survive on the other side if you do. Or more likely to. Yeah. Before, before yeah. But like when I'm watching like uh, fighting, for example, on when they do the ring walk, if I see someone who's really worked up in, oh, I, I was like put my money on the other guy straight, and it doesn't always work that way. But I think a lot of the time you'll see the calmer people are just the better deci- decision makers oh, every time. Time. I think that's a universal truth. To be mm-hmm. honest, about being, being calm and thinking you through way through things mm. definitely. And so you became you. It, took that month and then you were you they just kept you on for longer they just kept me on yeah and then i, I mean i spent probably more time doing that kind of work for the next decade and a half than anything else how um and so um how do you set yourself up in that world because actually it must be quite weird that you you can't stay in the same place for quite a long time then because once you made your arrest people then know well he he was he's the only one who's not been arrested do you know what i mean well, I mean, the, the jobs developed very, very quickly. And yeah. <coughs> I think an important point to note is that even though he questioned me, it wasn't really that difficult. No. Not really. I knocked on this geezer's door and he's just never met me before, but he sells me a rack of crock. Yeah. Crock of rack. Yeah. Crock of rack? Mm. Crack of rock. <laughs> rock, rock, rock of crack. Yeah. The biggest drug dealer, you know, in the world so he's he's going to want to get rid of his stuff so that going at that level is going to make it easier to infiltrate them is it well yeah mm-hmm. but they were unawares the ta- their whole drug scene was completely unawares of the, this new tactic Brilliant. but he went to prison and you know people talk in prison yeah and people talk with people all regionally so it, it didn't take very long before everyone knew that this tactic was around mm. so it instantly became more difficult so short jobs turned into several weeks, and then it wasn't long before you wouldn't do a job less than six months. Wow. So I started moving around the country, and I'd, I'd, I'd go, say, I'd be dropped into Leicester for six months. And the, the team of cops who were running the job and were providing the backup and the technical equipment and all of these kind of things, because the tactic developed very quickly tactically. And they wouldn't, know, they wouldn't be allowed to know my name, where I was from, uh, they weren't allowed to ask me where I was from or anything. So my, they would know my pseudonym as, as much as the gangsters would know my pseudonym. And then very quickly that structure came in place. Right. And so what was your pseudonym? Uh, I was a different one each time. I used I, Cookie was one once. Okay. I thought, Cookie, that, everyone likes cookies, don't they? Yeah. It sounds really friendly and yeah. unthreatening. No, yeah. I, know, I, know, I know a lad who goes by that nickname, actually. Really? Uh, Why? His last name's Cook, but... Oh, OK, right. Yeah, all right. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I was calling myself Paul Cook as well, but Cookie, I just thought Cookie. Yeah, yeah. it's got Cookie a good ring to it, though. It's, believable, it's a believable straight nickname. Yeah, because yeah. you'd never, you know, yeah, if you'd gone in there and your name was Scarface, you know, it would have been a bit different, wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah then, then, yeah, then you've got a bit to li- live up to instantly. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. so we've gone from the beginnings of undercover police work in this country, which you of, were sort of... Of this type, yeah. A, ...around for, to... All right, it's now a major operation, and you're now. When we, me and Lawrence have seen it before in the movies, where you see the guy who's he almost has to create a whole new life for himself. Um, when actors sort of get inside a character, they they take on all of the sort of personal traits of this character they've created in the head, and they, now now you're living a whole different life than what you have been living. Did you ever feel like when you were doing these big operations that you were like losing? Neil and and becoming Cookie. Well, 
I mean, when we eventually had training, because mm-hmm. we were the first few years who didn't have training, and I, and I helped build the training. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had some of the level one undercover people, the people who do the proper spy stuff, mm-hmm. come and help, come and teach us. And they always said that we're, we're not actors. We're playing just a different version of ourselves. Mm-hmm. So it, it is an interesting question, but I, I didn't really... I never found I was losing sense of self, mm-hmm. but I did change quite drastically because it, essentially you have to manipulate people mm-hmm. and you have to manip- manipulate people within a community. So, you know, I would, I would pick the easy, easiest people to manipulate, which is often the, mo- the most problematic drug users. The, the weakest. The weakest. And, and the way, the way to, to um, make use of those people is to befriend them and empathise with them. So it's like weaponizing empathy. So it's almost sociopathic in a, in a sense. In an organised kind of yeah. way, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Because you are, you are manipulating someone in the most stark and cynical way, mm-hmm. really. It, for, for the greater good in what you, what you, in what you for think the great, you're For doing. the greater yeah, good. Yeah, I mean, all, all of the time, I was, as far as I was concerned, uh, I mean, I knew I was putting people at risk because obviously they'd be at risk as the person introducing me. I knew I was making their lives harder because they get wrapped up in it. They may get a prison sentence themselves. I knew I was the harm I was causing to these people quite early on. But... I was taking the view that the end justified the means. Yeah. Because it's the end result of catching the really vicious gangsters who are m- murdering people. That makes it all people. worthwhile. Well, I, I, that's, I was balancing that mm. as an ethical decision. And so, at, the t- at the time, at the time, I was, I was thinking that the end justified yeah. the means. So, I, yeah. I mean, this is a sort of left field question, but you know your upbringing in that. Were you quite an em- empathetic person or were you sort of quite a hard uh, young man when you were growing up were you, were you taught to be because I'm thinking to myself I've always sort of been taught from being young like oh, if someone's on the street and they're like homeless or they're clearly a heavily drug user you should sort of take pity on them um, what were you sort of taught about those people before you ended up sort of trying to lock them up I mean I had a very a quite I was quite politically minded mm-hmm. and I used to debate politics with with my parents, and they would they, they would you know, they were quite ethically minded. But I don't really think actually I developed my sense of empathy very much until my early twenties. If I'm honest, I don't, as, as a young person, you can be very interested in the arguments, but mm. not necessarily feeling other someone else's uh, point of view. That's yeah. very true, yeah. which is why most people get swept away with that sort of thing in their in so their years. As, their as a as a twenty year old man. I remember I was very hard, well, harder than I am now. It's like my emotional side. If I see like the scenes we've seen on the TV now, when I like I said to you when I first seen the Twin Towers nine eleven, I was like, oh, that's really sad. But it didn't really hit us. But now when I see things going on, it actually hits us because yeah. I've become aware of what suffering and pain really is to people. Um, so do you feel like by dealing with these people emotionally, you switched on more? Absolutely, and I, I completely agree with you. I, I, I would trace a similar journey mm. as, as well. I, I, I've become more empathetic, but certainly, I mean, I, I learnt um, in, th- through this work, really, and, le- and developed my empathy uh, in that way. So, yeah, I, emotionally things touch me much more. I've, I think I've got more emotional intelligence, and I think that's probably the phrase that, that mm-hmm. fits. Which sort of makes sense. As you get older, you do learn more. You learn about yeah. more of other mm-hmm. people's experiences. And, and another thing is... Uh, well, I, this isn't true across the board, but I do believe it's like generally. Uh, I think the older you get, the weaker you get emotionally as well. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean the more the more vulnerable you become a little bit oh, because 
when you're 20 you can be a bit more emotionally ignorant and be like I've got the rest of my life uh, it's all going to work out good for me do you know what I mean but once you realise no actually like um, it isn't how, how you all expected life to work out You, I, I don't know I've seen people become who I thought were really hard melt as they've gotten older like and, and crumble who I never thought would my idea on that, though, is I do think that's very much a cultural thing. Maybe. Or maybe that's also a stage that some people go through. Because yeah. I don't think that I've seen, not every man in my life, not every woman in my life has sort of gone through that same arc. And in other yeah. cultures, you'd argue it's the op- not the opposite, but uh, I think um, maybe in Western culture, people are um, encouraged more to hold on to things. And so you become a bit more... Um, What's the, like you, you romanticise things to some extent and as you begin to empathise with other people mm-hmm. a little bit more things become a bit more heartbreaking for you that like said, it's not a general rule but I, I'm just it's something I've observed where I've, I've seen people get a bit more in it's, touch with them you mean the regretful side of things I think when once people realise they can't just continue making mistakes and everything's going to and harming other people I think, I, you, I think when they, you realise what harm you do to other people yeah. I think that's quite a big change oh, it was for me mm-hmm. I mean, that was one of the biggest changes when, when, so were you saying you went through that during your time in the police or was that I went through through that um, through undercover work mm-hmm. I mean I, I'll, I'll give you an example yeah. uh, what, a guy I manipulated in in Nottingham a guy called Cammy, <coughs> and he uh, he was a problematic heroin user. He was a drug dealer, but he was on bail for drug dealing. So he was the perfect sort of person for me to go because he was connected to the um, to the group that I wanted to get into, which was the Bestwood Cartel, run by Colin Gunn. He was connected to him. He was, that's where his supply was coming from, and he was introducing me. So I manipulated him. I bought him presents. I bought him. A, I remember one day I gave him a baseball cap that said it was a leftover from when I'd been shoplifting, and he in, immediately took his cap off, and put this new one on, and. Look, looking at himself in the shop reflection in the shop doorway he says oh man that's amazing needed a new cap anyway one day I found him leaning against this same shop doorway and he was crying I says Cammy man what, what's up with you he says uh, oh, I'm my best mate from school he's just died died in a football pitch heart attack or something he says he's meant to be the healthy one you know surely it should have been me that that happened to mm. and he says, so I said so mate are you going to go to the funeral and he looked at me like I was an alien Says, don't be fucking stupid. Last thing that family wants is some dirty smackhead turning up at their son's funeral, which really hit me because, you know, it's it's worth remembering that, however much society and individuals look down on problematic drug users, it's very not often as much as they look down on themselves. Mm. So that that was just one of the things that that really got me. This is this is the kind of person I'm manipulating and, and making life more harsh but anyway when he was arrested at the end of the job a few months later in the police cell he was on suicide watch and it's not because he was going to jail which he was it's not because he was rattling from the heroin which he was it's because and he said this in the police interview he thought I was his one friend in the world Mm. fucking hell mate so that that's real luck that that really that really grips you that Mm. really really doesn't Nobody really. ever wants to make anyone feel like that, ever. No. Even if it's part of the greater good and you know, you're know you convinced that all the work you're doing is good, that would t- 
like I think if you didn't touch anyone, they'd have to be heartless. To be honest, you can sort of play that both. I mean, not uh, you know, obviously you're on the fire. So that's if you someone you play the fucking oh, I, I wouldn't be affected like that. No, no. So I'm, if you someone said that to you, I'm you'd be fucking gutted. I, I know you would. I absolutely would be gutted. But at the same time, I, I also think some people are emotionally manipulative people, mm. and you know, when they find when someone's angry with you, they'll say, "I thought you were my but, but the, in the, the world. thing is, you know what, what, I mean? what I'm thinking, and then you're yeah. and they're, they're trying to get they're trying to harm you back because they feel like you've done harm to them. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, I'm not saying this takes away from his experience. No, no, but in this in this, in this situation, I think that's the, that was the genuine truth. Yeah, because I, because I know his situation and I know he was he was struggling to to connect with other people. And and, and those manipulative people that you're, you're referencing as well, though people who are naturally like that, who and I've met people who it's almost like a way of life for them. They don't know. Let's say breathing. Like some people, Their there's no guilt. Sort of, yeah. There's nothing behind the eyes. This is how they survive. That. Uh, I think was it reptilian brain or something Dan Hardy said like mm. just heartlessness like once that but they're like that all the time but for you you're not like that you're doing this as a job yeah so yeah, you're exactly. living with the consequences of it, it, so a normal person goes to a nine to five job they might, they might stack shells all day they go home might have a bit of a bad back but they can switch off and that's it you have like permanent guilt clearly from a situation like the, that did that just affect you throughout the rest of the evening or for weeks on end or? oh for a long time in mm-hmm. fact I decided I was going to stop working undercover mm-hmm. from, from from the end of that job I mean there's been all there was all sorts of things happening in that job anyway mm-hmm. um just to give you an impression of, of what led to me thinking oh I can't I can't do this yeah, work definitely. anymore so he introduced me to um a lieutenant there was a, a real a person I really needed to get getting in touch with it, really connected <coughs> within the within that cartel and got the introduction and he I met up with him and he turned up in this car with his 12 year old son in this by the side of him in the car like a little mini me this both had the shaved head clever anyway he opened the door and immediately stuck a knife into my bollocks and I could feel the steel actually pressing against against well, you really don't want to, want to feel a knife. Oh, fuck, I. The guy, it, the guy, not the, the drug dealer. Yeah, yeah. The drug dealer, not the 12-year-old, yeah. the drug dealer. The 12-year-old had his, the offside. But his son, yeah. was there, his son was there watching. Yeah. Anyway, he interrogated me for about 15 minutes. With the who, knife against with your... With the knife right. against, yeah. Who, who was her? Who did I know? I know Cammy. How long have you known Cammy? All these kind of conversations, he's asking me again, trying to trip me up, asking me in different ways. Um, anyway, eventually, eventually... I thought, no, I'm going to either lose my nuts here, or I'm going to, or I'm going to get some some heroin. Anyway, eventually sold to me, and that got me into that group. That was about four and a half months into the group, into the operation. The next day, my backup team, two of my backup team, had gone sick, so I had to have new, two new people on the team. I met them in the morning, and uh, one of them shook his hand. Yeah, seems okay, no problem. The next one shook his hand. And instantly the hairs went up in the back of my neck. Mm. I thought, this is, this is just not right at all. Now, when you've been working day after day, working undercover, your perceptions are quite finely tuned, or maybe you're just a bit, bit paranoid. You're on the edge. You're on the edge. Mm. You're, on, you're really focused. Uh, and so I, I said to the guy running the job, I said, boss, I cannot have this guy in the briefing. I can't, I can't explain in detail. It's just something about his body language. It's just not right. Mm. And bless him, he said, yeah, no problem at all. Mm. We'll exclude them both so they don't ask questions and not let them know where you're going. Anyway, that job came to an end. Eventually, that led on to Nottinghamshire Police bringing down the Bestwood cartel. Colin Gunn's in prison at the moment. But when, he, when Gunn was brought down, it turned out that the detective that I'd taken exception to 
was an employee of, him. of Colin Gunn. Mm-hmm. He'd been employed to join the police um, seven years before. He was paid £2,000 a month on top of his police wages, plus bonuses for good information. And so, as I say, he'd been in seven years. It was the fucking... Matt Damon DiCaprio fucking movie come to fucking life absolutely. so your intuition was dead on and it probably saved my life because that happens you, a lot apparently his, yeah as soon as you shook his hand yeah mm. when, I shook his, when I shook his hand what's that movie called The, the, the Departed that's it sorry I just I needed a note you know it's on the, <laughs> the, the description The Departed yeah. alright great film yeah. but all the way through that job it, Colin Gunn had been telling everyone getting it out on the streets that if he caught an undercover cop then they'd be tortured to death fuck me so there was all of that that sort of pressure going on all the time so yeah I mean it, well, you know what I mean I suppose the thing is once they've seen your face they know who you are or they sort of know roughly who you are was that always a worry for you was that something you were always worried about like were you worried that in the same way that uh, criminals are worried that there's going to be a knock by the police or sort of their doors kicked in were you worried that you might have the same wherever you stayed at night that criminals would kind of come for you and do whatever uh, as each job went on um, and I went from one city to another I, you know it was always in the back of your mind and you are you do start to look over your shoulder that little bit more yes. yeah oh yeah <laughs> I mean you... for that, that Colin that Colin Gunn guy who he hired to go into the police force how did he get rumbled um, well it was it was because the job into uh, Colin Gunn was, was so good um, and a little bit of luck as well it was a very good piece of police work by Nottinghamshire Police and, and he was and he was caught and, but um he was implicated in providing the information which ended up in some murders. Um, um, the judge sent him to, to prison. Uh, his guy, his name is Charlie Fletcher. It's, it's all a matter of record. Um, he, the, sent, the judge sent him to seven years, one year for every year he'd been inside. But in the debrief of that, when I met some, the, some senior covert police afterwards, I was saying, yeah, what, what's going on? And the attitude completely... to to me and Sorry, from the senior covert police was what are you on about mm. of course this happens with this much money involved mm. how can this not happen but, but, so when you think about it logically um, they've got millions of pounds uh, gear worth to play for what is it to pay this like to go and join the police force mm. and like obviously police force wages are nowhere near the kind of money that he's going to be able to get paid uh, be bribed to well, give him to be living on both Oh, he's going to get a double bubble, mate. I mean, he's Plus literally presents, getting overtime. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, well, it's seven billion pounds a year. Yeah. Goes into they, they said that, um, this country. Rick Ross, who um, he was, a, he's a rapper, but he got found out to be a prison god, and he, he sort of hidden all that behind. But they said that the reason why he was a prison god was because he was paid to become one, so he could. Yeah. Um, there's a there are some I mean there's conveniently he came out with that stories so, yeah. about Rick Ross because yeah. he his name is taken from someone else an actual yeah. drug dealer as well so yeah. there's a lot of fakeness about him but anyway his chicken chops are great anyway um, <laughs> and one thing that did strike me which maybe I didn't get the chance to bring up uh, this sorry what was the guy's name that you uh, you were he was you were his only friend Cammy yeah that um I guess that's part of the issue as well, isn't it? Is the portrayal of these people is that they're either they're terrible drug dealers or users, and then you're the good police people, and it's much blurrier than that, isn't it? Oh, it's far, far blurrier than that. Absolutely. I mean, uh, as I say, at the end of that job, it, it, it was just because I've been doing it for so many years at that point, and 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 I knew very early on that the war on drugs couldn't be won, but I kept doing it to catch the bad guy at the end. But at that point, that ethical sort of balance that, you know, the end justifies the means, I heard that from Cammy and various other people I'd, I'd 
uh, manipulated. I just thought, I can't do this anymore. But very quickly, after only a few weeks, I was tempted back into it. I got a phone call. And uh, it was the guy who, run the, who ran the, the operations at uh, East Midlands Special Operations Unit. And they said, Woodsy, we need you to do this job because these are the hardest to get into and these gangsters are even nastier than the last ones. These ones are using oh, rape as punishment. Wow. They, they are, they are com- using complete blanket terror and we've got to catch these guys, so Woodsy, we need you to do it. And what was it that would tempt you back into a situation where rape was the punishment for uh, anything? Well, you know, wh- well, why were you well, drawn back to that? Do you, you know what I mean? You're out of it. You're sort of, you know, I'm done. Well, because the, the bad guys need catching, and if they're that vicious, we've got to do something You've about it. You've clearly got a sense of um, you want to do good in the world, though, right. you? obviously. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, you're willing to put your own life at risk in order to long-term save others. I mean, you're not you're not directly pushing someone out the way of a moving car, saving them that way, but ultimately you're saving a lot of lives at the end of it, is the way you're saying? Yeah, I mean, because there was no glory in it mm. at all. Because, well, that's what because I was... we, were, we weren't even allowed to tell anyone. Yeah. yeah. So no, your family. Your colleagues yeah. couldn't say, oh, look, look, he's the man. Because they think we're allowed to know. <laughs> you're like the men in black, don't you? Like, yeah, you know, no, no rewards so are anything. How did it feel that when you find, like, so the Nottingham gang, for example, you work for months and months and months and then you finally get your man... Sometimes in life, I find that when you have to graft your arse off or something, and you finally get what you've been waiting for, all the graft sort of takes a shine off of it at the end. Did you, did you ever feel like a bit of an anticlimax? Oh God, yeah, and also you get adrenaline fatigue as well. Mm. So you know, for a couple of weeks afterwards, it's just like getting up in the morning, and you you just can't, you don't ever feel awake mm. for for so long afterwards, and that got longer after every job as well. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, I mean it's exhausting. Was it a bit? Um, I don't know if you'd use the word depression or anything like that. But did you ever have like? Did you ever feel like really down after things that happened? Um, I did. Yeah, especially you know things like Cami and various other things. Um, I mean, much much later on. Um, Eventually, I mean, I had, I had lots of near-death experiences. You know, I had a blades threatened me. I mean, the Burger Bar boys stripped me at gunpoint. You know, all of these various various things happened. Who was, who was that? Oh, that was um, that was Northampton. So when they phoned me up and said these guys are raping people as punishment. Oh, this was so that's, this was that's the Burger Bar. How boys. far how far into your career was this then? This was quite late on not the last job I did but very near this so this is probably 2004 so how many years you'd been in at this point um I'd been uh well I'd been doing it about 12 years something like that mm. wow. 11 or 12 th- I've been in the police say 15 16 years something like that the burger bar boys sounds sound so nice yeah, yeah I, well, burger. I mean they're, they're quite I mean they're quite notorious they're from Birmingham but mm-hmm. they basically were moving into Northampton and taking over the heroin and crack cocaine supply there and how do they how would someone do that <laughs> not that I'm looking at you know, how would someone move into another area and take over a, a scene like that? Do you just go in and kill the other people, or do you go in and threaten them, or just, what, what happens? Well, this is part of what I observed and part of what formed my later conclusions. Right. And because eventually I realised each year that these things were getting... And the very last job I did, I realised that there's no end to this. There's a... That, the drug war is um, is an arms race with no chance of de-escalation. There's no peace treaties. Mm. So everything gets nasty. So all the time I was developing more tactics and the police get better and better at investigating drugs crime. 
And there's always a pushback in tactics. I don't know if you've seen The Wire, it's accurate in the fact that there's always a pushback, there's always a countermeasure. Mm. And the most effective countermeasure that gangsters have is the increased use of fear and violence. Mm -hmm. Because the most successful gangster who is, is the one who can most successfully intimidate a community. So it becomes an arms race with the police, but also between the different organised crime groups or the, or the street, urban street gangs who deal, the most successful ones are the scariest ones. Mm. So Birmingham gangs had obviously developed their scariness over time much more effectively, and they moved into Northampton, and they just couldn't compete with them. They, they just couldn't beat. They had a, a big gang, they were big backing behind them. You know, they, they were a growing monopoly. And they just intimidated everyone. And they raped people. Yeah, I mean, I saw the police intel at the start of the job that they were regularly raping people and then you were using that as part of their intimidation. So They, they, were, raping, uh, they were raping men and women. That was the intelligence, both. But, um, but there was one particular intel that, you know, someone couldn't pay a drug debt. Uh, we're going to rape your sister. Right. And they did. That was the intelligence. Now, he, I went out actually on a job, and this is after I'd managed to get into them and, and um, buy off them. One day there was intel in the morning that they, they gang-raped someone in, this, in the car that I'd been getting into each day. So they said, right, we're going to have to have some contingency plans. The woman, who, the female who's been raped is not likely to report it. But if they do, we need to be ready with the evidence. So if you get in that car, then you're p potentially going to be part of the crime scene. Right. So when you come out, we're going to have to seize your clothes. And so, so it was all like arranging new clothes, arranging the backup. But of course, when I put the call in to buy some, some brown and white off them in the morning, they turned up as a different car. And the car that they'd done the rape in was burnt out on the edge of the edge of the city so so you know, you know they covered the tracks pretty so they, well they knew what they were doing as well oh god, oh god yeah they really yeah. knew what they were doing they, they were they were the uh, they were vicious they were genuinely genuinely vicious people um and where were they they were just normal guys from birmingham normal gangsters what like i mean they were second generation gangsters they'd grown up and they're from you know the their peer, their father figures they, they, yeah, were, they were all gangsters it's funny that you said that kid was in the car uh, with his dad, uh, just vision of Lockstock, you know, yeah, and Vinnie Jones is driving one, yeah. around with his son and that, and it's like, <laughs> it's not uncommon, is it? Exactly. I mean, the longer this goes on, the more that's going to influence the young. And, and, and you know, it, this arms race means that the successful people are the most violent. I mean, I saw, I, I met this kid in, um, just one example of many, in, in Leicester, just a few years, years before, and he'd just been selling cannabis on a, on a mountain bike, like loads of teenagers do. Bit of a cheeky kid, actually quite likeable. But he got recruited into the um, the heroin and crack scene where you really have to be violent or, or prepared to be violent to survive. Because otherwise, someone thinks you're a soft touch and might grass you up. Mm -hmm. So you're only safe, you're safer if you're more violent. Mm -hmm. So I saw him go from a cheeky, sort of pretty likeable 17-year-old to an absolutely terrifying 18-year-old who was instantly, because he was learning how to behave. So the drug trade, the illicit drug trade, is shaping the personality of so many of our young men in inner cities, which is changing the shape of communities. It's taken people who, if there was opportunities, um, more jobs available and things like that, who maybe they'd be answering the phone for a living, being polite to everyone or whatever, if it was worth their while to do that, 
they're now picking up a knife basically it's also to be quite honest there are also people who are um, people who could be entrepreneurs or people who could be you know starting their own businesses oh, and those sort of things because they're ruthless yeah. in a, a different way what we're saying is they're, they're not bad eggs like, no. obviously there are bad eggs out there but we're saying there are people who are potentially middle of the road guys who could go one way or the other half own warehouse or but because the Opportunity-wise, it makes more business sense to them and their 18-year-old mind to be a gangster. They're going that way. It's also that I was watching, weirdly, I was watching American Gangster the other day in the movie with uh, Denzel Washington, mm. which is a great, it's such a great portrayal of a gangster because there's so many different sides to it. Um, and in that film, there's a great scene where T.I., I can't remember what his character is, but he's the baseball kid who, want, who originally wants to be a baseball player. But he says, I don't want to be a baseball player any, anymore. I want to be like you. And he's really angry with him because he, he's like, no, you're meant to be a baseball player. He's like, yeah, but you've got this life. And you do imagine that must be quite alluring for a lot of people who see their older brother or whatever getting in a really expensive car and being like, great, well, you know, I'm going to go and sell a load of drugs or, you know, I've got a BMW. Why wouldn't you want that? You know? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, I mean, it's, it's a great misunderstanding about crime that it's caused by criminals. It's not. It's caused by opportunity. Mm-hmm. So if that 17-year-old that I was talking about, he, there was no way at the age of 17 he ever would have been that violent without going into that world. Mm-hmm. But that was simply the biggest opportunity for him. And the drugs market is a massive opportunity because there's actually a very low risk of being caught. Very, very low risk. Why so low? Just because it's... Because the, the, mar- the market's massive. It's right. a needle it's in the haystack It's a needle in the haystack. It's so huge. And that's you the know, funny our thing, thing is yeah. Our prisons may be half full of people connected with the drug trade. It, it might be the thing that's filling the prisons up, but that's still a drop in the ocean. Yeah, I mean, involved, that, it? obviously, everyone knows someone who can get them drugs, and that's not a coincidence. I Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but to me, I mean, I remember being a young lad, and I remember... Like lads I knew who I was mates with getting arrested and things like that, and I remember thinking to myself, like I, I understood the way they looked at it because a lot of them, it wasn't the the way people are made out on the news of oh people are just bad eggs and things. Like that. It's like no, it's like if my choice is stacking shelves at Tesco or the Corp or dealing drugs for a lot more money, a lot of them, and I'm not saying that this is the right decision, but I understand the logic behind it, are going to think, I'll take the fucking risk. I'd rather be able to pay rent in a nicer place and have a nicer car. And, and it is a little bit glamorous in the head as well. Do you know so, what I'm so, saying? And it, this is maybe a point that we'll get on to later as well, but it, um, it's really also that some people can morally justify doing the drug side things because actually they think well I think the government's wrong on this drugs should be legal I should be able to trade whatever I want I you know I should be able to sell cannabis to my friends and, if and I want desperation to. also also does wonders for um, your, ego, your morals like, yeah your guilty conscience as yeah. well because if you're I don't know if you've got a son to provide for a baby to provide for whatever and you're thinking to yourself you know I'd rather give them the best in life and if that means I've got to do this bad thing I'm not saying every drug dealer looks at this way some of them are just trying to make as much as they can for themselves but people people don't really think into the reasons that go into it in people's head one thing that strikes me about your story is it does seem um, incredibly lonely and like you're on your own quite a lot within that not only professionally because those people can't call you by your real name you're not you know if you're if you're working with rape gangs, the last thing you want to do is be going out with a girl that then they can then use as leverage or whatever. Fucking hell. Uh, you know, there's a, it does seem like quite a lonely job. Yeah, it was. I mean, uh, 
thankfully I'm quite an introvert, but, um, but yeah. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully, yeah. I love that. I'm a but, bit like that myself. I think I, the, the weird thing is actually, I think for a very long time, extroverts were what everyone was encouraged to be, and now I think there's a lot more diversity in what pe- the way that people see it because actually they see the the bonuses of being an introvert as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it was lonely sometimes, but then I mean, I, I was actually I, di- I didn't have the the happiest home life to be honest, and sometimes right. I was actually. A, quite happy to go to work and buy drugs off drug dealers um but so yeah it was it was a, f- a few years um i suppose it was a bit lonely but I, th- I have to say though i did so much of the work i did still enjoy mm. you know it, mm-hmm. there, there was the, there was that trauma to it but I, I did i enjoyed the art of deceiving people i have to i have to admit it you know it was it was a was it thrilling? feeling it was thrilling it was a feeling of developing skills all the time developing yeah. all the time learning you know you'd le- learn from people every day uh, and that's a that great that's challenge a great feeling. did it did it get you that challenge oh, absolutely yeah. the challenge yeah and there's always a new problem to get around mm-hmm. uh, and, and that, that's yeah that, that's thrilling it, it, in a weird way I, I, I kind of look at what you did when you talk about dealing with some of the serious criminals it's almost like being a fucking lion tamer like some of these people like they get a buzz off of that I mean I know, we watched a film lately about a guy with bears on the second channel mm-hmm. um, and danger does bring a bit of a buzz for people and obviously that got you at some point it, yeah, it did yeah I mean even when the when I got introduced to the Burgerwell boys which is fairly fairly terrifying mm. I, I had to manipulate someone because they were they knew the score they knew the tactics I had to manipulate someone in Northampton to I spent weeks and weeks wooing this couple giving them presents like shoplifting presents I, I used to look caps. yeah I used to love shoplifting by the way that was yeah. great fun as well for the cover. You know, it's really funny a lot of our guests really been compelled by shoplifting in their life like it, it seems it, to be a real thrill so I, I, so I assume that you were provided with the gear and then handed it over as if I shoplifted this no you actually shoplifted sometimes, it. I mean sometimes I was provided with a gear mm-hmm. but yeah but sometimes you just have to do it for your cover but mm-hmm. it is it's great fun and as a policeman you can sort of get away with it well yeah because I knew I was giving this stuff back yeah. or rather someone in the team was giving this stuff mm-hmm. back yeah, months, yeah. months later yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have to actually explain I'm sorry I emptied your shelves and I'm, but I'm, yeah and so you're giving them presents what kind of things are you shoplifting for them are you shoplifting in front of them are they sort of going, get me that? And you're sort of like, all right, then, yeah. Uh, yeah, sort of. But um, like, child's clothes I was giving them because right. they had a real a, a market for baby clothes. There's always a good market for shoplifted baby mm. clothes. Um, Small as well, so you can <laughs> hide them in the jacket. Yeah, but it's expensive, isn't it? Mm. You keep replacing them so people, yeah. you know, parents, you, you know, are not very well off. Anyway, uh, so I was, I was, I wooed them for weeks and weeks before they got, got me an introduction. Now, on the way to meet the burgers where they were, uh, they were holding. They were holding court in this snooker club in the centre of Northampton. I love you. He's painting a picture here. I'm, I'm right into it. And is, is and it the way you'd imagine this a snooker club? Sort of dark lights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely dark. Like lo- really big. Loads, smoky. loads. Of, uh, yeah, smoky. Loads of the snooker tables. And as we were approaching it, my mate, who's, who was actually walking with a walking stick, he's got he had a sort of gammy leg. He's walking. He's starting to sweat. He's saying no, and he was testing me. The cover story you've given me. Because basically, he said, we've, no, we've known each other for years. This is where we met. This is what we've done together. We almost got caught shoplifting doing this. We know this person and this person. He was grilling me with a mm-hmm. legend he'd given me. I thought, this is so weird. As if Cause he's... Because I've, I've got a cover a co- story, <laughs> and, and, he's t- and he's making me rehearse a cover story <laughs> whilst I'm running this cover story. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. Fucking hell, man. So anyway, we got there, and he's terrified I'm going to slip up. So we go in there. And instantly we get directed into the gents' toilets in the snooker club. It's quite quite big, and he he's crapping himself. Anyway, this hooded figure comes he's in. The right in. Place. Yeah, he's, he comes in. This hooded figure, and he goes into the cubicle, and he stands in the toilet. And he looks over the top, and he says, "What's this?" 
Anyway, then these four figures come in, the door bursts open, and these hooded figures are walking around me in a circle. Every so often, one of them headbutts me, and it all gives me a dig in the ribs or kicks my ankle. And I'm just having to sort of stay there, and the keys keep circling me. And all the time, he's asking me questions and asking him questions. Right. And then checking, and then checking him up with me again, and this goes on and on. And then my ear gets headbutted, and that hurts, you know. Mm. Inside of your ear, it really hurts. Yeah. And, and, and this, so the sense of imminent violence was it was incredible. I just thought it was going to erupt. I thought that was it. They're all just going to instantly turn on me. And then he just goes like that, and the four go. And he says, "Yeah, all right. Then what do you want?" So I said, oh, "I'll have one on one, please." So I got one one point point four of heroin, point four of uh, crack, and then gave him the forty quid, and we were away. But um, and, and but and those are the guys running the gang. Those, those were the, yeah, those, those, those are the the gang. Are they, are they the lieutenant? Are they sort of the ones below the radar? Well, the guy in the they? toilet stood in the toilet. That's that was the lieutenant, and the rest of them were sort of his team. Um, but you never, and you, ne- but you never really got to meet. I suppose you're never really going to get to meet the very top people, the guys who are creaming off the, the millions, essentially, the hundreds of thousands of these. No, no, no. All, all of the work, all of the work I did was the down and dirty, grimy stuff mm. on the streets. To and be did, honest, did that feel a little bit like you were winning a battle, but you were losing a war? Well, I don't know, because sometimes there was intelligence that we'd get that would provide intelligence to the higher-up people. Right. But, you know, by the end of it, you realise that actually the ones who can afford the proper corruption, the ones who can afford to pay the top dollar, hmm. they, also, they, they don't get caught. Do they, you think they also pay their MPs. the police at certain levels, possibly? Allegedly. It's not for you to say... Well, I'll give, you an exa- I'll give you an example of, of the extent of police corruption as a result of drugs money. Yeah, we've had a few questions about that for you. Um, in Manchester, when I'd finished undercover work and mm-hmm. I was working as a conventional detective, a detective sergeant, I think this is only March 2011, mm-hmm. and I got a call that one of the houses in Hay- Hayfield, which is in the Peak District, had been raided mm-hmm. uh, by a great... A beautiful place, yeah. beautiful. This house, a sort of million and a half property in Hayfield, had been raided by Greater Manchester Police. And I went there because I was the duty DS. I was just a bit odd. You know, why don't you phone ahead, get some of the locals to, to help you out? And they'd found this cannabis grove, this cannabis factory in the, in the cellar of this property. And uh, so I, I found the sergeant. There was loads of them as well. I think there was 12 cops there. It's like incredible. So it's, why don't you just phone ahead and, you know, we're, we're going to be taking this crime off you anyway. It's on our patch. Why, why all the, buy the cloak and dagger? This is not, it's our brief. We don't talk to anyone at all. We've been tasked with bringing down the empire of Aaron Coughlin. Mm-hmm. Now, Aaron Coughlin, you can look him up as well. He is allegedly, or as this police officer told me at the time, um, a gangster on the south, south of Manchester. That's his, his reputation in Manchester. And he said, that's what we've been tasked to do, to bring his dad down his empire. So we're doing warrants and doing bits and buzz where we can. But we've been told not to talk to anyone, not a single other cop. And we've been handpicked by the chief constable of Manchester. And there's only mm. one chief constable. And so he runs, what, several thousand cops in Manchester. We've been picked by the chief himself as people who are most trustworthy. And we're not to tell any of our colleagues what we do. And we only report to the Chief Constable. Mm-hmm. So I said to him, wow, so you are the, the untouchables then? Mm. And he says, yeah, but we've been told we're not allowed to call ourselves that. Now, 
it's hard to convey just how extreme a thing that is. He seems a very straightforward guy, this guy. The, the, We've been told, yeah. yeah, but we're not supposed to. In fact, I'm telling you right now, I've been told not to tell yeah. you. <laughs> Listen, I feel stupid. <laughs> but, but, but you think about it, it's, it's hard to grasp the importance of this, to, the, the actual impact of this. Yeah. The chief constable of Manchester can only trust those 12 in the whole of his constabulary yeah. because, of, and that's, that was an anti-corruption thing, because of just how much, and, and whenever... How easy it is to buy people off. It is. I mean, don't get me wrong, I've worked a lot with Greater Manchester Police. There's, there's some fantastic people there. It doesn't take many people to create a, a reputation of being but corrupt. people are just mm. people, aren't they? You, but if you police officers aren't robots. But it'd be for Apart from Robocop. <laughs> uh, he is actually half robot. Yeah, so. that Again, is. another film where you, you took his documentary. Mm. Yeah. So you, you said at one point earlier on that you got in a situation when you met these burger lads that, what, they, like, stripped you or something? Or? Well, yeah, I mean, I used to sometimes wear a wire, but you'd make a very careful decision whether you're going to wear any technical equipment because, <sighs> you know, you are liable to get searched. And I did get searched a few times. Mm-hmm. But I thought... and. It was fortunate that, I, really fortunate, I decided not to wear one on this particular occasion because they just turned on me, and there was four of them. And uh, they turned on me this day, and I've been dealing with them for weeks. And um, they took me to the edge of the race course, which is a big, big park. Obviously, it used to be a race course in, in Northampton. And uh, they said, right, lifted the shirt up. One of them had a, a gun in the in the band of the, the trousers. Um it was a like self-loading pistol, a handgun. It's straight, strip. You're wearing a wire, man. If you are, you're a dead man. Mm. So I strip. No, keep going, keep going. They'd be stripped naked, including my socks and shoes, and I'd be stood there. And uh, and they're saying, "Ah, oh, look at a little white boy." And I, and I thought, it's fucking cold, you bastard. <laughs> you, to be fair, what, what also must have been going through your head at this point as well is a sense of relief that you weren't wearing a wire. Oh, you kind of have no idea yeah, just how much you're so, relief you was. Was, when you When they yeah. get stripped, you're like, fine. Exactly. I've got new wire on, as I tell you. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I was, I was, I was stripping with confidence. <laughs> yeah. 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 He was like the full so money. Yeah, yeah. Socks yeah. as well. All right, fair enough. Yeah, there's no wire down here, mate. Yeah. And so you. Oh, and, fucking hell, man. Uh, and what were they? Were they? Uh, if they call you a white boy, why are they? What are they? Well, um, the Burger Bob boys happen to be black. Mm. Right. Okay. Just joking. Yeah. Um, and so, stop trying to touch his legs. It's uh, I've weird, got really it? long legs. So I put my feet out, and then yeah, yeah. it's yeah, we've had a lot of complaints about the table. Sorry about yeah. that. Yeah. And so uh, they make you strip in the middle of the park. In, well, at the edge of a park, the edge but of essentially the park, in the middle of a public area in daylight. Yeah. yeah. Just um, after lunchtime. Right. And and k- kids were all playing. He's getting locked up after yeah, lunch. Yeah. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, not for the drugs. And then you are left in the middle of public with no clothes or. Uh, no, no, I, I put them by. I'm pretty, right. pretty sharpish, yeah. uh, and thankfully they sold to me. Still, it's, I think they sold me four, four point fours actually. Right. So you really had their trust by that point then? Yeah, that was really well. They, they never. Obviously, they trusted me more after that. Big time. In fact, after that, I think the next time I saw them was interesting because I was at, weirdly for that job. I used the name Woody as a pseudonym, which I think I was being ironic because mm. it's actually, you know, it's actually my name. Mm. Um, but. It worked, uh, but the next time I saw them, I got in the car. And this, it was a, this really, really big car, big black car. Mm-hmm. Got in the back, and they didn't 
they were normally completely straight. They didn't didn't tend to use any drugs. But this day, they opened the door and this big fog of cannabis smoke came out. Mm. And I got in there, and uh, the, the the main man was sat there, and he's he's like really stoned. His eyes, and he says, "Woody man, Woody man, why they call you Woody man? Is it because you looks like Woody Allen man?" <laughs> thinking, Woody Allen, I look like. I'm thinking. That, do I really? Do we all look alike to you? So anyway, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the weird, the weirdest story, the weirdest, the weirdest, the, the, just you know, thinking on your feet type of thing. I said, well, oh, actually, it's a nickname that came from a few years ago. I said, uh, have you seen the film Toy Story? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he goes, oh yeah, yeah. Thinking, nice. Oh, it's a Toy Story, right? <laughs> Big bad gunster. Everyone's and, relaxing at this point. Yeah, He's yeah, got his yeah. DVD player in the back. I says, well, there's a bit in that when the character Woody, yeah, he's picked up by the naughty kid, and he gets and he gets a like a magnifying glass and burns a hole in his head. Yeah, says yeah, yeah. So at the time that film came out, I actually had skin cancer on my head, uh-huh. and I had to have laser surgery. It was burnt out. Can you see the scar? Yeah. And he went, oh yeah. And I says, so my mates started calling me Woody. Brilliant. And he went, oh man, that's so tight. So, you know, because he's off his tits at that point, so that's yeah, the biggest shit he's ever heard. But, I mean, but he's it, been in prison ever since, going. So I met this guy with skin cancer. On his head, <laughs> right? but, yeah. but I just thought, I just thought it was quite weird that you know this this guy who was all violence and guns and rapes and things would think it was a really cruel thing to do. Yeah, it's amazing how uh, people who are like really dark, evil people have this side of them. That's I, like well, we're talking a lot about TV and movies. Uh, for me, when you say the word gangster. Tony Soprano was the first thing I think of and he was someone who had a very he, he had two different sides of him in, in the Sopranos where he was like the, the family man who had a real soft spot for animals mm-hmm. anything happened to animals and it would send him off the deep end like you'd get really upset about it but then he'd think nothing of putting a bullet in someone's head once he went out the door and was uh, Tony Soprano like the gangster um, which is sort of the funny thing because it's the same in again American Gangster which I was watching the other day they were talking about how you know, the Italians in America, they have a way of doing things in order and those sort of things. And the, the black guys who are the gangsters were seen as the disorderly guys. And what you also realise is both of those are obviously fi- they're fiction. You know, it's, it's not true and it's all based on... that. It sort of helps the police in a way to dehumanise both sets of those people. Yeah. And you do sort of realise that that's the basis of those things, that actually the reason, it, you know, Italian gangsters portray themselves with some set of morals is because it allows them to perpetuate that myth and get further up. And, and, and man- manipulate a community as yeah, well. Exactly, because, yeah. because what happens, the longer that you police drugs, the more you separate police from community. Yeah. And so the communities that are dominated by organised crime, they, they enjoy taking on the community figure. Yeah. So, I mean, there's an infamous gangster uh, in Salford, uh, Massey. Sean Massey, and he's shot now. He was he, he he was just part of an ongoing war in, that's still going on in, in Greater Manchester. Mm. Um, but he stood for mayor, mayor of Salford. Wow. He didn't come last. He came fourth, but uh, and he got a massive share of the vote mm. because he'd become such a public figure. Everyone knew. Everyone knows in Salford that he's a gangster. Everyone knows that he's got a whole team of thugs yeah. beating people up for drug debts that are. You know, the, the shooting people, carrying weapons. He, everyone knows That's that. That's why. Well, but he's still a community it, figure. It, it, when you go, when you go further back, like for example, The Godfather, the first one, and and that was obviously written about 
like drawn from inspiration from real people. Uh, the Godfather was called the Godfather because he was seen as like. Um, a godfather you know, for the community. A godfather yeah. figure of the community. So, like, it, when the police didn't handle, like, the first scene in The Godfather is he's going to the godfather because the police haven't given him justice mm. and he wants him to sort out the people who hurt his daughter or something mm. like that. And a lot of them still try and... Because if you win people's hearts, like you're saying, the people equally... People will be terrified of you. You've got a longer chance of staying in power. But also, if people think of you in an endearing way like that, if you kill someone for someone, or you've done something terrible. Ex- yeah. Well, no, but you last longer as well, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's playing playing both sides of mm. that game, isn't it? Some people do see, and, and you know, not to sort of get take it too meta, but some people do see the government as just sort of a legalized version of that in a way. You know, some people don't. You know, they see paying taxes as sort of a racket and those sort of things, which isn't necessarily true. Uh, you know, on a, on a, on a it, scale. It, well, a lot, a lot of the things that are done, and this is a massive conversation that we're not going to go into because we've no. got other things to ask about, but yeah, a lot, I think Escobar. there's a lot of good people who get involved, like yourself, who get involved with the right idea and then realise there's corruption in every way. Every way there's people, there's money, and every way there's money, there's corruption. Which is what makes... Um, have you seen the film Hot Fuzz? Yes. Yeah. Which is actually what makes that film so great is because that's actually it's it's about no no I'm not. We've gone from doing, the Godfather to Hot Fuzz. Yeah, Hot Fuzz first of all, Hot Fuzz is a really great comedy. Oh, it's it's it really so. funny, but it's also about how police <laughs> is it, the sort of the whole basis for the film is that this straight laced cop goes into a town and wants to lay down the law. Mm-hmm. But these guys have got their own law, and it's their own racket, and they're gangsters in their own right. And it sort of shows that anyone can kind of fall into that. Mm-hmm. It's not just, you know, the sets of people we'd normally associate with that. Mm. And they all argue it's for the greater good, in the same way as an Italian family would or, you know, anyone in, in that sort of area. So you must have come into contact then with a lot of different cultures as well and sort of had yeah. to deal with a lot of those different things. With every time that you... Like, were you in... Do you have to research that, or was that something you had to learn as you went along? Because not every gangster is going to act the same, are they? No, I mean, well, you can research to a to a degree, but on sort of street level slang and colloquialisms and things, they're so varied and, and they're so changeable. You just have to you just have to have an ear and adapt to very quickly. To, to be honest, it, you know, you can be um, you can be calling. I mean, there was a there was a time for a short short time in Nottingham where where uh, uh, crack was. Uh, whiskey, right? He's the whiskey because white, white whiskey, right? And uh, brown was brandy, you know, all these kind of slang things. I don't know if you, that's what you mean, but the yeah, sort of yeah. slang in the language is really, really changeable. But you can get found out if you don't know that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can stand out a, a great deal. You just have to sort of adapt. Um, what do you think makes a good undercover uh, police officer? Uh, being humble. Empathetic because you you can't have any kind of um, aggression and you can't be someone who reacts to a situation with aggression. So you, you so the ability to be non confrontational. Mind you, having having said that, sorry, I um, so yeah, and being able to think on your feet. Those are those are the essential qualities. But you can't be someone who has any kind of confrontational bone in your body, really. Because when I when I have been confrontational, it's been not. An angry reaction. It's been a decision to do so in order to protect myself. If that makes sense. Uh, it's very calculated what you're doing. It's not you're not lashing out. You're doing it because you know it's in your best interest in that situation. If you stand up for yourself, for example. Yeah, exactly. But, but it seems to me, looking at you, that the fact that you don't come across as the most physically imposing guy, and that you are sort of um, very non-confrontational naturally, that it would have benefited you a lot in your 
line of work? Yeah, I, w- I would say that's that's mm. the case. Yeah, being non-confrontational is a good thing. Mm. Going back to that guy who was the uh, almost double agent for both sides, I was just sort of mulling over him. Mm-hmm. When he's found out and people work out he's working for both sides, um, there must be an incredible feeling of betrayal in the police there as well. Uh, and also, I guess, a suspicion that he wasn't the only one who knew that he was doing that. Is there a, is there also an air of suspicion between everyone that works on the staff? Did you ever felt? Did you ever feel like you couldn't really trust anyone, even within the police force? Because you find out that guy's doing that. Surely that undermines so much of what you're working on and what you believe in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when when he was found out, uh, it was incredibly unsettling for for me. I, I genuinely thought there was very few people I could actually trust. Um, I, yeah, it's um, it made just working life much much less comfortable mm. when, you, when you come face to face with that, really. But in, and also within the police force as a whole, you must see you must it must make you wonder well who else was in on that because someone must have known along the way. Yeah, I mean you think so, but the thing is, what's unsettling is that there's no way he's the only one. Yeah, you know that, that that's that's the way the tactics in corruption is going, and that's only going to get worse. Because the value in the drugs market just it keeps increasing. Mm. You know, seven billion pounds a year that buys a lot of police officers. It buys a lot of prison guards, and the only way we can fight this corruption is by getting rid of the illicit drugs market and reg- regulating drugs. It's the only way. That, that's what yeah. struck me when I've watched a couple of interviews before today is how you kind of described it in a roundabout way as you know emptying the sea with a bucket. Like it, we're really just pissing into the wind here uh, we need to do this differently and you sort of got a totally different attitude to what you had when you first came in of let's get the bad guys to now um, who is the bad guy? Who, well not necessarily who's the bad guy but um, shouldn't I think one in one interview you said we want our police officers catching real criminals and rather than the vulnerable people who are self-medicating a lot of the time. Yeah, precisely. Because we've talked a lot about catching gangsters. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay, I caught Colin Gunn and the Burger Bar Boys. But actually, well I put a lot more people in prison that were vulnerable mm. and just needed help. You know, there's so many of the problematic heroin users that I met, a large number of them were self-medicating for childhood trauma. Um, but, uh, very often for childhood abuse, either sexual or physical. Mm. I mean, there's, there's a woman I met in Northampton, and she she said to me, oh, I can do my rattle, I can come off heroin, no problem. And I do sometimes. But the only trouble is when I do, I become suicidal because then I start remembering the childhood abuse that I got, the sexual abuse of my uncle. And then I start becoming suicidal. Mm. So for her, it was a pract- pragmatic decision that goes, going on to heroin was keeping her alive mm. because heroin's a very powerful painkiller of the body it's also a very powerful painkiller of the mind mm. and another thing that I noticed with Paul Hannaford in a weird way was it seemed to motivate him in terms of giving him purpose so that every morning when he got up his job and mission in life was to find a way to steal enough crap to get as much money in order to afford his heroin and I think for some people who are just sort of empty and I'm not saying Paul was, but some people are, they sort of, they need a purpose. And in a weird way, they find that through the drug. Yeah, it it means they don't have to stare into that void that they have. It means they don't have to um, face up to that lack of connection they've got. It's amazing how much in life um, bad childhood experiences 
echo throughout the rest of people's lives. There's some people who are 60 years old and still not over what happened when they were 10 years old. And, and yet what maybe is unusual is the way that we then treat those people. Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, I mean, you, a lot of the time that you hear, I mean, uh, especially in the UK, I imagine a lot of that is influenced. Like you say, we're talking about the war on drugs. That's actually an American term, which yeah. has come over to the UK. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, crack was an American drug which has come over to the UK. A lot of this seems to be influenced by American culture in some way. And the way that American culture has gone, and arguably now because we share a lot of our press barons, um, there's been a similar portrayal in the UK and Sky News is going in a similar way to the way that Fox News is going. Mm. So it's sort of beginning to portray people or the poor or the underprivileged or whatever you want to call them as uh, not people who have not had a fair start or have not had a fair chance, a crack of the whip, as people who haven't tried hard enough. And they've they've gone down the route because it's the easy route to go down. And so it portrays them as the people who are perpetuating their own Absolutely, problems. yeah, absolutely. Let, let's, let's make it clear, the war on drugs is a war on poor people. Yeah. And it's a war on minorities. I mean, the racism in the war on drugs is, is, is just incredible. A, a black person in the UK, if they're stood in the dark, they're going to be sentenced for a drug offence. They are 13 times more likely to be sent to prison than a white person. Mm. Now, that's just beyond unacceptable. I just can't understand the logic behind it. Like, for me, why not help people? I don't know. There, there isn't that much logic to mm. the war on drugs, really. But, but, it, but if you imagine these police are given these powers in yeah. the beginning of the 70s mm. and say, right, we need, we, we, we've been told we need to catch dr drug offenders. And are they given statistics that they need to catch a certain amount of drugs? No, but for, for the very first time, professional drug squads are set up. Right. For the very first time. So they've got, right, this is our job. We've got to catch drug dealers. Hang on. What do drug dealers look like? Nah. And so that, that draws on prejudice. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you ask every one of those people, they say, oh, you're racist. Don't be stupid. Don't insult me. Yeah. But once you start thinking, oh, hang on, what does a drug dealer look like? Then that amplifies... Racism that's there. So if you think what happened through the 70s, the stop search increasing and increasing, and then you've got, for example, the Brixton riots, yeah. which were, which is basically, I think most historical commentators would have, would say was much, very much down to the stop and search policy yeah. and, and the Metropolitan Brixton Police. Yeah. That's, hap that's not an accident that it's 10 years after the Misuse of Drugs Act. Mm. That's the racism that is being fuelled in our societies by policing drugs. Have, have you experienced pri in private conversation racism within the police? Very rarely. Um, there was one South African, ex-South African who was in the police who I was shocked, stunned to hear say that he trained his, his dog, because he was a dog handler, trained his dog to black, bite black people. <laughs> Which 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 just astonished me. I was a, a naive nineteen year old, but, but generally, generally from South Africa in that time, in that accent yeah. as well, it's like, oh my god, how sinister mm. is that? What great brown yeah. But but through but no, I didn't. I haven't come across. I've come across hardly any, any any at all over racism. But that doesn't. But it is endemic, and it, it, well, the proof is the statistics. The proof that you know you can't yeah. argue with those statistics that the racism is so. One of my mates who joined the police. Um, He's, he said, like, he asked the police officer, just as he was joining, he said, like, um, what do you think makes a good police officer? And the police officer, and I, like, this lad I've known since I was three years old, so it's like, he's not going to lie to us about this, do you know what I mean? And he said, um, he said, oh, it helps if you this, this, this. And then at the end he went, and you know what else he said? And I went, what? He went, and it helps if you can uh, beat up a black lad, basically. Yeah. And I was like... Wow. Well, he didn't say that? lad though, he said something else, you know yeah. what I mean? But I'm not even going to say that. But uh, I just remember being like, fucking hell. 
like just shocked to be honest I suppose I'm not I am actually naive about it like racism because I've never encountered it being a white lad like from Newcastle there's not that many um like black Asian people up there there's it's quite compared to London it's so different mm. so coming down to London's really opened my eyes I mean policy was was racist as well mm. in the beginning of the 90s there are no more black drug dealers than white drug dealers it's, there's the criminality across mm. it's, it's, it's racially equal is it proportionate? Yeah, it's proportionate. It's proportionate. It's also partly down to then the fact that if you if you assume that a, I mean, you know, if you assume that black people, let's just do black and white people for now, right? Yeah. If you assume that black people are uh, carrying drugs and therefore you search more black people, the likelihood of you finding drugs on those black drug dealers is much higher. Whereas actually, Precisely. there's a load of white people with holding drugs, but you're just not searching them. Absolutely. And and at the beginning of the nineties, the reason that I was asked if I wanted to go and buy that crack of crack cocaine, is because in the media there was the moral panic. And the moral panic was about black people dealing crack. Yeah. Quite clearly. All the tabloids, that's what they were talking about. So the pressure from government to police forces was catch those crack dealing gangs. So the energy was directed towards black people. Yeah. So how do you think that we solve this issue in reality? Would you do things differently? The only way we can stop the accelerating racism from the drug war, the only way that we can remove the corruption that it's causing with the police and prison service, the only way that we can save more lives and reduce harm is to regulate the drug supply. You've got to take the whole market away from organised crime completely. So we... How do you do that? Well, you break it down into individual policy chunks. So, for example, heroin is actually the easiest one. You prescribe heroin. Right. They do it in Switzerland. When they started prescri- prescribing uh, heroin in Switzerland, they, there was something weird about that they, they, um, they reduced crime massively. Burglaries reduced, and they virtually eliminated street prostitution as a result of mm. doing it. Because they've rescued people who are being sexually exploited. And do they have an NHS there, or is that part of a private system? Like, were they giving, or were they selling? They, they, they're giving. Right. That's, that's, they're not paying for it. That, they're, they're giving it to them. They're, and they're looking after people, those traumatised people who need help. And so they are reducing the number of people using it very successfully. No one has ever overdosed in one of those facilities. No one. In fact, no one's died in a drug uh, consumption room anywhere in the world. And you'd Um, argue even if someone had, it's still less than if they were in a... Exactly, exactly. So they're looking after people and it's... Because you can regulate it more. Because you can regulate it. It's not like, um, for example, when Paul was on the show, he said he was, God, he was sticking a needle in himself 50 times a day or something like that. Whereas if if the government are fully in control and supply and that, they can keep him at X amount. I mean, in theory. Well, actually, it's quite interesting because a lot of people criticise that that system. saying you can't prescribe heroin to heroin addicts Mm -hmm. because they'll just just want more and more. Well, actually, Mm -hmm. they let them have as much as they want. Mm Mm-hmm. So they said you want to when they go onto it, and almost every one of them will say, "Well, great, I'll fill my boots tomorrow. I'll leave even more and more." And they keep increasing the tolerance over the space of about six weeks. And in virtually every case, after six weeks to eight weeks, because they've got space in their life for other things and they've got other therapy going on, they start to bring their own amount down. And and, 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 and because of that, they're not shoplifting. They're not robbing people and things like that. And they're not. Um, creating they're not involved gangsters. with gangsters either the, the gangsters yeah. disappear because their, their trade's disappearing but on the other end of the spectrum you've got cannabis and that, that could be done quite easily as well I think 
Canada are about to regulate the cannabis market for, for the, across the whole country. But the reason we urgently need to regulate cannabis is because less than 1% of teenagers can buy alcohol. You know, you go into a pub, you've got this big badge that says Ask 25. It's really difficult nowadays. Mm. Dealers don't ask for ID. They only, they only want to see a £10 note. Over 50% of our teenagers in this country have got easy access to cannabis. And that's not right. The drug can be harmful for teenagers. We shouldn't be letting them get it. Mm. But perhaps even more important than that is the whole structure of organised crime, drug dealing organised crime, recruit through the teenage cannabis market. Right. That's where teenagers get laid on and at a weight. They get laid on half an ounce. You know, come back when you've sold those 14 one gram deals. You know, pay me then. They're involved in the market. And then they're corrupted into, into more and more dangerous stuff. That's where it comes from. So you can separate or you can protect our teenagers from organised crime and the drugs if you regulate them. And I would start with cannabis. So what do you do? Uh, because I think then, then we get into the details of that. Because it's very clear what your idea is. Legalise drugs and you can regulate it. Yeah. And that's the basis. What do you do with um, now... Uh, the, the sort of the chemical drugs the drugs like ecstasy and things like well, that yeah, what yeah, do you I mean, do look with at, that when you look at MDMA there's a, a good friend of mine and fantastic campaigner called Anne-Marie Coburn she lost her 15 year old daughter to an MDMA overdose now her daughter Martha swallowed it, several doses by mistake because she didn't intend to die of 91% pure MDMA now if the MDMA market had been regulated if you could buy it at a pharmacy when you show that you're over 18 with, with your photo ID, she wouldn't have been able to get hold of it because that would have got rid of the black market. Right. But if she had got hold of it, even despite the regulation... She would have had the education to know how much to take. You would, she right. would have known how much, and each individual dose would have been regulated. There would have been warnings on the packet. Exactly how much to take is quite clearly defined. Martha wouldn't have died, and virtually all of the MDMA deaths wouldn't happen. If it was regulated, then my my question to you, because it's you're sort of talking about like a uh, forgive the ignorance like an FDA kind of model where it's like it's approved by those people. Yeah, I don't it's know a good, what, it's a good FDA model. Account, is is that in Britain as well, or is that just an, that's an American thing, isn't it? It's kind of we, still, we have a, similar yeah. regulations yeah, where exactly. you, you have to you have to be very careful what you put in food. We do it. We're, we're very right. very good at regulation in this country, actually. And so. Um, then when you get into that, then there are, there's still the fact that most people say, well, the horse has bolted now. It's gone, the horse is halfway down the field and we're saying, let's go catch that horse. Because new drugs are being come up with, you know, people are trying to cook up new stuff all the time. There was the, the whole fad of legal highs for a while, which, which caused a lot of issues. Allegedly, I don't know. I mean, I never tried it. No one, I don't know that many people who did. What do you do about it? Because also, I mean, ketamine, you know, ketamine is a... Tranquilizer. How do you regulate all these things that people want to get high on, and how do you do that? Well, whatever the drug is, it's safer if it's regulated. Right. So if someone's going to do it, we should try and keep them alive and reduce the harm. Drug policy should be about saving lives. But if you talk about the other novel drugs that come along, all of the legal highs as they were, NPSs, they only exist because of drug prohibition. They're a product of, right. of drug prohibition. If cannabis had been regulated 15 years ago, you wouldn't have had all the chemicals like spice, black powder. Exactly. You just wouldn't have, you wouldn't mm. have had it. And, and it's not too late because right. if, you, if you look at tobacco as an example, we now have the lowest tobacco use rate in this country since 1940. Mm. That's only possible because that chemical is regulated. 
you can put plain packaging Education in. Put, has played a big part in that exactly, as well, hasn't it? Exactly, but you can't educate until you regulate, because mm-hmm. otherwise, what are you educated about? It's also, it, to be fair, that took, I mean, I don't know how long that is since 1940, that's 80 years almost, right? That's a few generations that's taken time to come yeah, through, isn't but it? But it hasn't taken 80 years to get there because the education on, uh, so when they started putting black lungs on pa- uh, packets of tabs, that only started about 20 years ago. If, so it's, it's not that, taken long to yeah. sort this out, really. No, no, but at no, the same time, the sa- I mean, I'm not saying I'm not putting an argument against you. What I'm saying is it, we, oh, no. we've seen how long it takes. That was a few generations of watching people die of lung cancer, watching people die from you know even people who didn't smoke but grew up in a smoking family mm. dying of lung cancer or all you know whatever you want to call it, whatever you know uh, smoking causes uh, and that's part of it now is that actually a lot of people are very scared of these drugs and it we're almost being scared into regulating these things in a way well yeah i mean the thing is we've three years in a row we've had record drug death increases drug deaths for the first time this year are higher than road deaths in the uk <laughs> okay this is urgent this is an epidemic this is a crisis and we need to do something about it since drugs were banned in 1971 they've got stronger more varied and cheaper when i started buying heroin in 1993 i was paying 10 i was paying uh, 10 quid for 0.2 when i stopped 14 years later i was paying 10 quid for 0.2 and that 0.2 was stronger than when i started i mean because we have no impact on the drug supply. Policing doesn't bring that price down. It gets easier and easier for, for gangsters to sell it. And so they're in competition all the time. The product gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Because it's its own sub-market. It's not being yeah. regulated. I mean, what, you know, what, price was a, what price was a pint of milk, milk in 1993 compared with 14 years later? You know, it's, complete, it's the only inflation-beating uh, uh, product. It's going down in price, getting cheaper. Yeah. And now we've got fentanyl coming in, which is, which is an adulterant in heroin, which has been devastating North America. And in the last few months, we, well, the last few weeks, we've had some deaths in, in the UK. Okay. For, for me personally, there's, a, there's the elephant in the room that the government are ignoring is that it doesn't matter what laws you bring in, it doesn't matter what you do, people want to get high and that will never ever stop because people have hard days at work people have depression people have experiences when they're young people sometimes just want to chill out and have a good time you will never ever stop that so you will never ever want to ever stop people taking drugs it's impossible to stop once you grasp that fact we'll actually get somewhere but until that happens we're going to keep pissing into the fucking wind that's absolutely right and well said I mean people do want to temporarily change their software yeah and and it's it's no different to having a glass of wine, yeah. uh, having a glass of wine after work, like many forty-year-old uh, housewives do. Do you know what I mean? It's just a different version of that, and that is more acceptable. And I think, unfortunately, one of the main reasons, the main issues, is cannabis because it has so many uses, and there's so many companies that are terrified of that getting legalised. Because if if I'm part of the alcohol trade or um, the medication trade, I know that I'm going to take a massive whack if people can just grow a fucking plant and not, same, and, and not get that money. And then, so the argument about that would be, who are the people who have the biggest uh, means of production? Who are the people who are very good at um, coordinating that sort of thing? It's the it's the, the people who already do medicine and the people who already do alcohol. So you need to find a way of making win, it in their interest, of winning those people. Over, Unfortunately, which, though, those people are not from the countries that it would serve if this was made legal. Yeah, exactly. So, 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 the, so the 
the people I don't know like they're all the white collar like the white collar criminals like in my opinion like they're, they're making a fucking you could argue there's a racket but then we, we're getting into a really sort of no, but, uh, yeah, so what I'm saying is though but ironically it does come back to skin colour in a way because it is going to be people with brown skin who fucking make the money off of that if that, and that's why they're fighting it How in my I? opinion it's got nothing to do with what's right for the people oh don't take cannabis because it's bad for you it's all about money I think we're all agreed that there's mm. not many people I'm not saying anything new under the sun there yeah. I'm just saying it because it needs to be said and the sun has never said it definitely like um, what is interesting from my side is obviously there's regulation there's other industries where things are regulated um and I'm, I'm not trying to give you a hard time. I just want to make sure that people don't think we've just allowed you to come on and be like, legalize all drugs and then let you go. <laughs> um, what, what about, there are industries where things are regulated, alcohol, tobacco, those sort of things. Some people still want to avoid paying tax. They want to do it themselves. They want to go direct to the consumer. What would stop someone from still being a gangster, being underground and doing it their own way? Well, I mean, the most important thing about regulating drugs is to remove the black market. But you make a very good point that there is still a black market for, for example, alcohol. There are certain parts of the South Coast where it is estimated that 10% of alcohol that's sold is actually smuggled. So there's still organised crime involvement. My, but, my godfather was jailed for smuggling cigarettes, actually. But, another great reason for Brexit. <laughs> I'm joking. But that's only avoiding tax on 10% of the market. Right. The, the illicit drugs market is a hundred percent of what you know. It's, it's mm. so you're talking a small, very tiny percentage that's reduced to the, the black market, and and that's a massive improvement. That yeah. that that money is not enough money to buy yourself people to join the police. And we're also sort of talking about. Um, I, I read a book a few years ago when I was a kid. Uh, one of Ben Elton's books. It was called High, High Society. Society, and it was about a minister who tries to legalize drugs because one minister there's something about one minister every year is allowed to suggest a law they can push through mm-hmm. and so he's talking about legalizing all drugs and it very, it's basically the situation you're talking about um, it, is, it, is it practical? is it something that could happen? I think it's inevitable I think that um, the war on drugs is, 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 is beginning to die because there are politicians there are men I mean at Leap UK we speak to lots of politicians and lots of politicians advisors and there is great sympathy for the view and you know people want an evidence based policy but this has to start the public first the politicians have to have be confident that they can get voted in on this topic so mm. so actually it, more important than the politicians is the mem- is, is the public and mm. if anyone listening or watching this is persuaded then please you, you have just become part of the social movement unfortunately like I think that there's still particularly people who are over the age of maybe 45 right now who are still maybe brainwashed into what people were told so many years ago that like people like my granddad for example drug users are scum to him do you know what I mean there's not there's no education there for what right. it's all really about do you know what I mean right. um, I think it's going to take from like people who are like our age when they are 50 60 years old when we're sort of controlling the old people vote and that that education's then had so much time to marinate that we might actually it's going to take, edu- it's it gonna take generations yeah it's going to take 20 years probably that's frustrating because I actually quite like some cannabis do you know what I mean <laughs> But, 
but unfortunately you can't have any because well, I mean, it's the not thing legal. Is, the thing is, there are other countries and there are other places where it is becoming legal. LA. Yeah, LA. Uh, Canada's, Canada's, Canada's the big one. That's mm. the one that, that, that's going to have the most impact the internationally. Whole country. The whole country, yeah. And Canada's and, and the reason, sort of the reason, isn't it? The, yeah, it is, the, yeah. But the reason that's going to have the biggest impact is because Justin Trudeau campaigned on the, it as a child protection issue, which it is. Right. And as soon as you start framing that to people, that this is about protecting our children, and once the evidence starts coming from Canada, then that's the big domino that's going to stop. And that, it's sort that's of how we sell it to the people. Not literally, so no. how we sell the idea. Yeah, we've got to protect our children from drugs because they can get too easy access to them at the moment. And we yeah. need to protect them from the black market, which is corrupting them. Right. Uh, how do you get rid of that black market, though? Because that black market is... Uh, you are also um, angering... It's, it's a bit like poking the beehive, do you know what I mean? And saying, we... Well, maybe the worst then You're saying they're not going to go down without a fight. Yeah. There's, there's not going to be many drug dealers out there that go, cool, well, I'll just put a shirt on and move into the I'll go and industry. Get a, yeah, I'll go and stack shelves at Asda. Yeah. Well, of cannabis. Ironically. <laughs> this is actually the, the, the biggest argument I have with police officers. The police officers' argument, or reg many police officers' argument, is that they're not just going to go away. They're going to do more gangster shit. Like what? But that's it. Like, like what? Exactly. But the, the thing is, is that there's a real danger with that view because that's the view that these people are bad and are always going to do something bad because yeah. they were born bad. Which is, and again, that, a generational thing. Yeah. But, but that's, to, yeah. that's, 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 that's prejudice. You know, people are not born bad. They are, they are, it's not criminals that cause crime, it's opportunity. But it, what, so what I'm saying to you is... Uh, it all stems down to poverty in a way. And that's what I'm saying. So the, the, my, my argument, or the idea that I'm putting forward, I don't necessarily agree with it, is that these people aren't bad, but you are taking away a huge revenue stream for them. And if someone's built their whole life around... You know, I've got a BMW. I've got whatever. Yeah, well, they're not going to suddenly rob a bank because that's too big a risk. No, no, but that's what I'm saying to you. So, how do you, how do you then deal with those people? Because that is quite tricky, isn't it? That's a well, that's line. that's a wider social issue. I mean, the, the the fact that there are less opportunities for poorer people is something that's a wider political issue. Do you, do you, know, do you know what I'm thinking about right now? And this is such a weird comparison. Mm -hmm. But in the YouTube community a while ago, there was a revenue stream of FIFA coins where people were sort of semi-illegally making money out of selling digital um, products on the internet. And that was taken away by a company and people were literally making hundreds of thousands of pounds apparently off so of people this. People making millions a of pounds. Yeah, apparently some people were making millions of pounds out of this sort of thing. And um, well done to them. Uh, and you know who you are. Unfortunately, I didn't get that. But anyway, I'm not, I'm not bitter. It's not that you didn't try but to The thing is, it. once that was regulated and that income was no longer there, People have to just make do, and what what you said is, well, what are they going to do? And if those police officers haven't got a response where they can say, well, they'll just do this, just, what are they going to do? They're, once you take away that main supply of income, it's not like they can just create another issue. No, no, exactly. They can't create another drug because people have already got that. They've they, you've eliminated that now. Well, I suppose, I mean, the argument would be, you know, there, there is other stuff they can do. You know, there's, there's gambling and all sorts of things that they can do. But then, but you're arguably taking away an, an issue which is a huge part. Massive. Of what yeah, they yeah. Have. yeah. But, but all opportunities for crime are already being taken. Yeah. So you won't create more crime by reg regulating. No, and that's not necessarily my argument. Exactly. But, yeah, but, um, good point. Yeah, which is it. it 
the, the problem is it, all, it does all seem a little bit too easy, doesn't it? it? Or it seems a little bit too simple. So there are going to be people out there who have the opposite argument to you and sort of oh say, God. no, we need, we need more regulation of those. Well, we've been criminals. trying pretty hard for several decades yeah. now. It's time to wake up and realise that this isn't working. Wake up and smell the cannabis. <laughs> it's, it's not just futile, it's worse than that. It's and, causing great harm. And it has to be also, though, that it's down to the education of people that then people vote in the right way. That they and put pressure on their MPs as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to have people actually contacting their MPs and saying this is an issue. Mm-hmm. Because it isn't as if actually what I find interesting. If you go to a music festival or something like that, um, you could probably arrest everyone. everyone, there. everyone <laughs> <laughs> but if you go to a music festival, at least I mean. You know, the police don't go with drug dogs for a very good reason. Do you know what I mean? Because then because they, well, the dog would go mental. Well, for then a start. there'd be no music festivals anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But that works as a perfectly good functioning village for about a week or two. Do you know what I mean? And the police seem to be able to walk around absolutely fine. You, if really, anything, when everyone's high, is very slim chance anyone's going to attack much you. Much more pleasant. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it is much more pleasant. No, I'm not advocating the, the know, use of drugs. Because people do get... I was not advocating no, the use of drugs. No, but you get attacked in the comments for advocating the use of them. Also, yeah. What we're saying is regulation. Yeah. And that's what you're saying as well. I'm saying we should save lives and reduce harm. Mm. And one great point that you made is if people out there... Um, in a previous interview I've seen, you said if you don't care about, you know... um, that side of things of the care of people and wanting people to not be in such a bad way that they're at the you know at the end of a phone of a gangster all the time wanting the next fix than care about the money because it costs a lot more money to police these people and to jail these people than it does to care for them and um, nurse them back to health sure but if you are one of those people who cares about the money I want to make it very clear you're an asshole. okay then okay um that, but that's quite interesting as well, isn't it? That actually there is a there's still going to be a big stigma around drugs, which will again take a generation or a few t- to get yeah. rid of. Um, arguably, you're also saying something here that it would create a massive revenue stream for the government, and well, you can tax it. And yeah, something. absolutely. I mean, the, the amount of tax that's been brought in, in in the United States and those those states where it's legalised is absolutely enormous. Apparently, suicide rates are going down in the states where uh, marijuana has been legalised as well. Yeah, and there is less opioid overdoses in those states as well, which is also very interesting, I think. Mm. So there's a lot of statistics really to back yeah. it up. There oh, are yeah, people the, the evidence is all on the side of reform. You know, I can de- I'll debate anyone. Yeah. Anyone publicly. Not Theresa May, you won't. She won't turn up. No, no. well, no, she won't. <laughs> because, <laughs> because the evidence is on our side, and oh, all yeah. we want is for policy to follow evidence. It's mm-hmm. just not too much to ask of any politician, I don't think. Were well, there any we... police officers who came to you after the book came out and were like... I'm not really happy you put that in or you know, disagreed with what you wrote or anything like that? Before the book came out, I was public enemy number one to the covert policing world mm. because I was talking about it, I was campaigning about it. Since the book's come out, I've had enormous amounts of support. So many people have, have uh, contacted me. In fact, we've got several new members at Leap UK who are ex-undercover cops who are saying you're saying things that were on my mind brilliant it's it's fantastic um, someone's asked if you had to do things such as have sex with people or take drugs while undercover never had to have sex with anyone um, I definitely would never have done that for ethical reasons mm-hmm. uh, I did have to take drugs 
I only smoked cannabis a few times. I had to take amphetamine once, mm. which was pretty... I'd stupidly made myself out to be a connoisseur of amphetamine and got myself into a bit of a sticky situation and had to have Jesus. it. Jesus. Which was horrendous, to be How honest. do you make yourself out to be, a, as you, in your own words, a connoisseur? I was just, you know, I like... <laughs> I like yeah, yeah. That's a YouTube <laughs> channel coming soon. <laughs> Oh, I just, I just talked about it, you know, I liked some really good speed, I mm. liked, I liked my methamphetamine, I liked my Dexies, those kind of things. And they sort of called you bluff? Yeah, well, they did, because they gave me a present, and it was uh, normal. Not a cup, like no, you norm, Normal speed is about 5% pure, this was 40% pure. Jesus. And I was up for three nights. It was horrendous, Fucking I was hell. so anxious. Mind you, my house has never been so tidy. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that speed makes you very um, switched on. Oh. Um, that is horrible. Were you ever worried that you'd do drugs with them and then you'd sort of drop your guard? Well, I didn't do it very. I didn't take drugs very often, and it was, it was really a last resort kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I didn't, not, not the terms I really thought about. Um, I mean, when I had the speed, I got out of there as fast as mm. I could. Yeah. I thought I can't. This is this is. I just need to go. Yeah. Someone was asking, what is the worst thing you've had to do in order to keep your identity secret? Oh, uh, no, I don't know. I mean, lots of people are manipulated. There's no one particular thing that I had to do. I appreciate that about you, though, that you seem sort of, um, yeah, sort of proud of what you did, but equally, when it was feeble and weak people, you sort of had a bit of guilt about that because I think a lot of people wouldn't I'm, I'm not proud of what I did I mean I'm proud of the personal development I got out of it mm -hmm. and I'm pleased that some nasty people were put in prison but overall I'm not proud of the work at all did you get it, because I, I significantly caused more harm than good significantly and did you get much support from that for the, from the police so, for instance, you know, have you received counselling on that since or anything like that, or is that not the kind of no, thing? No, we received counselling once a year and it was crap. Right. I can see by the smirk <laughs> on his face, so he's like, oh, yeah, they really looked after me. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I had PTSD and they, don't, they didn't understand it at all. I had right. PTSD at the end. I was a bit of a mess. Mm -hmm. But they, people don't understand PTSD. Do you feel, I mean, this, we could talk for a long time on this as well, but um, you hear about soldiers who have PTSD and... Um, servicemen and women do you feel like there's still a stigma about that yeah I, I think there is but uh, it's decreasing now it's mm. getting significantly less so but there's still people don't understand it enough and I think there should be more discussion about it to understand it yeah when you're putting yourself in very our brains as humans aren't meant to go through the things that you've been through and other people have been through so when you go through that there needs to be like aftercare yeah but oddly enough all the near death experiences I had and there was quite a few it's not actually those that were dominating my mind when I was suffering from PTSD because mm -hmm. you have sort of I had intense anxious memories where I was existing only in one memory mm -hmm. which is really really horrendous when you're doing without sleep um, but it wasn't the sword to my throat or anything it was it was the people I'd manipulated mm. it was the camis and the other people like the that. guilt yeah yeah fair play mate um, moral damage I think is the phrase right someone asked um, what was the closest you ever came to blowing your cover if uh, ever yeah well I had someone find the camera um, it's a very long story though um, so I, had, I had a gangster find the camera but you probably have to read really because oh. matter how I, long have we got found the camera so that, that that's in the book though yeah yeah that's in the book yeah that's a, wow. certainly a story to read out of that then but they found the camera they found they found the camera and yeah they, I, I almost got run over with a car it was it was a very touch and go surviving that one fuck me mate that's so there's a, there's a one reason to buy the book <laughs> finding a camera they're always going to run over back up um 
a couple of questions at the end that are quite funny. Um, who would make a better detective, Lawrence O'Brien? Oh well, I mean, you've got a great attention to detail, which would which would, stand, which would stand you in good stead. But you've got such a an open sort of a likable. I mean, not saying you're not likable, no, but you've got that sure. sort of instant connection with people would, would be an advantage at all. So, how about hybrid? Maybe if, you have, maybe if you have babies. Co- maybe if you have babies. <laughs> you know, it's actually ironic how often that comes up on the podcast. Um, it, I think the only reason I'd give the edge to Lawrence is because it, I feel um, conspicuous. The, no, uh, the fact that you're a lot more less confrontational than me. So I, I think I'm very good up until that, until you say confrontational. Because if someone yeah. got in my face, I'd I think I'd find it very hard to just brush it off. Whereas I think you'd be good at that. Yeah, but then I, I, I don't know because that's the sort of thing you can train yourself. If you know, again, if you know there's going to be a reward from not being confrontational back. Whereas uh, the difference in your real life is that if you're confrontational back, you tend to get a reward because look at you. you whereas you've got you, to play the long game, I suppose, in this respect, haven't you? Yeah. Um, and and I think you're much more manipulative than I am. <laughs> Thanks well, that, very that's much. That's an advantage. Yeah, it's a real. Yeah. Uh, don't mean if there was women on the case. Uh, does yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, who do I have to shag around here to get some drugs? I'll I mean, morally, I'm, I'm willing to do whatever it takes yeah, to get yeah. this case yeah. nailed down. Uh, does he ever get so friendly with criminals that he sympathises with them? I know you've, you've kind of already. Uh, did Did you ever get in touch with any of them after you retired or um, anything like that? Or? No, um, I, no, I haven't. Although what one day I, I do hope to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, interesting, one particular person I got friendly with, a, a drug worker, a drug worker contacted me to let me know that that particular person is alive and well, and that was that was amazing to hear. Actually, it was mm-hmm. just so good to hear that that this particular person in Leicester was was alive mm-hmm. and well. So, wow. one final question, buddy: How would you like to be remembered? How would I like to be remembered? It's a big question, but I like to ask people because I think it says a lot about um, people. I, I suppose I'd like to be remembered as someone who brought the truth to people and helped contribute in a small way to the uh, ending of the war on drugs. Well, I hope you get what you're trying to get me because I think you're doing a really good job. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for coming on, Neil. Thank you for inviting Appreciate me. Appreciate it, mate. Um, yeah, we'll leave the link to the book in the description below. I'm sure I'll be a cracking read if you've enjoyed this. Cracking. Well, yeah, oh. cracking. Yeah. Uh, if you've enjoyed this video, hit the like button, stay subscribed. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you later.